I don't think that any business right now can survive without having some social purpose to what they're doing. Find something that breaks your heart and then do something about it. I think that big business, if done right, big business has an absolute ability to move the needle on social issues. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. And I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Dennis Barsima. Dennis is a founding investor at Impact Engine and the chairman of Northern Illinois University. He is a former Fortune 500 CEO, leading several companies in the telecommunications and technology space. He has also been a director at many nonprofits and organizations, including Carpenter's Place, Opportunity International, Collaborative Group, and several microfinance organizations. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you for uh, having me on. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. Thank you so much for joining us today. So let's dive in. You are a prolific leader. You've been, as mentioned, a CEO or director of dozens of companies and nonprofits over the years. Before we kind of dive into your background, can you just Give us the origin of your career, the story of how you got started. You know, when I graduated from Northern Illinois University, I went into sales, got into the technology space, not because I knew technology was the place to be, but they offered me $500 more than the other company in a different space offered me. And I had loans to pay back as well out of college. That's how I got into the tech space. But once I got there, I realized that there were these really cool companies out there like Apple and Microsoft and HP and others. I graduated with a degree in business management. I kind of said, well, if I'm if I'm going to use my degree, I, I, I need to manage a company. So, you know, I set a goal for myself to become a chief executive officer of a startup high-tech company in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I did that in my early 40s. Was part of three different tech companies, all three as the CEO, all venture funded. One of them we took public, the other two we kind of purpose built them to sell, which we did. That took us to, you know, about 2007. You know, that's when my 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 life kind of took a, a sharp right-hand turn in terms of career. But that's kind of my business background and, and how I got into the tech space. When you were a CEO, did you ever think about the social impact in your businesses? Or maybe if you can, give us some examples of that or how stakeholders were considered in decision-making? That's a great question. And, and if, if I'm going to give you an honest answer, which, which, which I'm going to, the, the honest answer is no. Up until about the late 90s, early 2000s. And one of my venture capital partners, Hamod Hawk, Promote was the managing director for Norwest Capital, invited my wife and I to a luncheon. This would have been 
probably mid-99. And he had just come back from Nicaragua with a with an organization called Opportunity International. And at that luncheon, there was maybe 20 of us gathered. He showed us pictures and he talked about his trip and he talked about how the impact of a $100, $200 loan can make on the life of the poor. Now, I was a CEO who you know was raising millions of dollars to fund my companies. And I sat there going, how in the world is a couple hundred dollars going to help somebody start or run their whatever their business was. And but he he piqued my interest because the whole concept behind microfinance was the money in essence never died, right? That you would give a loan to somebody, they would use they would use that loan within their business, they would repay you back, and then you would have that money to loan to somebody else. And I was really intrigued as a business person by that. So my wife and I went to Nicaragua with opportunity and I saw the small business owners there and 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 just the impact of a couple hundred dollars and what it can make in their life. And from that day on, we got hooked. It was then that I started to think about how social impact and business could intertwine with each other. And to be very honest with you, I was very disappointed in Silicon Valley at that time. And that was one of the reasons why I left and came back to Chicago to do what I wound up doing here. I'm curious, what were you disappointed by? <laughs> I knew that was going to be the next question. There were two things. I, 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 I won't name names and I won't name the companies, but one of the the companies that I had, I, I went to the board and, and we were being very successful. And I suggested to a board of venture capitalists that we take a percentage of our profits, put them into a foundation and use that money for the local community there in San Jose to, to do good things within our local community. I had that idea shot down really fast. You know, the venture world was just not ready to listen to taking profits and using them for social good. No, we take our profits and we give them back to our shareholders. And so that was the first marker. The second marker was about five years later. So this would have been about 2005 or 2006. I was actually in the offices of another venture capital firm as a, you know, an entrepreneur helping out some of their companies and and they funded one, one of the companies that I was running and I sat with the partners and I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if on your next fund that you're going to raise, and you know, they were raising hundreds of millions of dollars in venture money. I said, what if you went to your partners and you said, we're going to take a small percentage, 5% of the half a billion dollars that we're going to raise, and we're going to take that money and we're going to invest in socially responsible for-profit businesses or social for-profit businesses. And they shot that down. Their comment to me was, people invest in us because they want to make money. They don't want us dictating what social causes they're going to support. And, you know, I looked at that and I just thought that that was wrong. And so it was at that moment that I kind of said, okay, I I need to go do something different because I had just turned 50 and I was at that point in my life where I was looking for purpose. And I had read a book called Halftime by Bob Buford. And that book, the subtitle of Halftime was going from success to significance. And that's kind of where I felt I was at that point. I had had success from a business standpoint, but I didn't feel like I had significance and that I was doing something to make the world a better place. And at that moment, now I will say Silicon Valley has changed over the last 15 years, but at that moment in the mid-2000s, I didn't feel that Silicon Valley was the place where I could find my purpose. And, uh, and that's why I wound up leaving. 
And you mentioned the time in which you were going to find your purpose. Do you think that that time for young executives now has changed? Do you think that it comes maybe even earlier in their careers? Oh, without a doubt. I look at my own son as an example. My youngest son, Jason, he has a financial technology company called Halo Investing, haloinvesting.com. And they are a for-profit business in, in the fintech space, but their motto is impact before profits. In working with the students that I work with at Northern Illinois University in the Social Entrepreneurship Program, which is a program that I left Silicon Valley to go back to Chicago, back to NIU to help create and, and, and start, I kind of had two choices. I I could have either gone and done my own social business, which in a way I did, but I did it with my brother who who actually kind of became the, you know, the elbow grease for that business. But he and I did a non-for-profit that became a for-profit together. But I, I felt that the best way to find my purpose was to you know, as I say, sp- spread the pixie dust and go teach social entrepreneurship. Go, go teach business students how to build a business that's a socially responsible business or a business that is actually solving a social issue. And I had over a thousand students go through my classes. And now it's just so encouraging to me to, to, as I stay in touch with my former students, to see the number of them now that are starting their own social business. I think that the generation that's coming through today absolutely understands the needs of the world, understands that the governments of our countries are not going to solve all the social issues, and it's going to be private citizens like us who are going to solve these issues. And I think it gives them purpose and satisfaction in doing it. So, so, yeah, no, I, I think that the, op- the opportunities that are out there today for somebody with a great problem to solve with a good idea are, are boundless. So I have a question for you around um, this, you know, diving a little bit deeper into teaching. I can see how a socially motivated you know, young adult would would be interested in, you know, learning about social entrepreneurship, all the angles of it, and and then decides to go ahead and start a company. Uh, but then they become a leader. And leadership is something that's very familiar to you. You've been a leader in most of your activities, if not all of them, um, throughout your life. But what would you say to someone who, who doesn't feel like a leader, but who feels this drive to go do something for the world, but they just don't feel like they themselves have this like natural leader aura that maybe you have. How do they become a leader? Do you think that can be learned? Being a leader is absolutely something that can be learned. I mean, I mean, I the and I'm going to steal this from my good friend Barry Posner, who is one of the leading authors in leadership in the country. Barry always says, you know, the definition of leadership is trust plus vision equals leadership. So if you're a trustworthy person, if I can trust you and you have vision of where we need to go, you've got the ability, if you want, to be a leader. So I absolutely think that leadership can be taught or can be learned as you go through your life. But I will also say that one of the things that I, that, 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 that I always tell people who want to be in their own business, as I said, you know, does a business, you know, I always give them a quiz, does a business begin with a great idea? You know, most times the answer is, well, yes. And, and, and I would say, well, no, it doesn't. It begins with solving a great problem. So find a great problem to solve that people are interested in solving, and then find a great idea to solve that problem, and you can create a great company or you can create a great business. And I also tell them that no, I, I have yet to see a company where one person has done it themselves. 
rarely do you find where one person did did ev- everything themselves in terms of starting a business. So if you're unsure of your leadership ability, if you're unsure of your ability to go out and raise capital or, or whatever it might be, go find a co-founder who does have that ability. Because most companies, if not all companies, are going to be started by multiple founding teams. And the people on those teams need to have complementary assets, not assets that mimic each other, right? So I'm very comfortable being around salespeople and marketing people. I I know how to communicate with them. The engineering world kind kind of scares me a little bit. But if I was to start a company and if I did it with all marketing people, well, we'd We'd be able to to tell the story real well, but we wouldn't have a product. You need to find folks that complement the skills that you have. And if leadership is not one of them, at least not in the beginning, well, then go go find a co-founder who has those skills. I think the E-Myth is probably the most succinct and, and clear book that kind of talks about how to fill in a co-founding team as an entrepreneur. That was the benchmark capital, guys, right? I know it changed my I, life. <laughs> yeah, I think Emith was the benchmark capital guys, uh, Andy Ratcliffe, and uh, who who is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, but but yeah, I agree with you. We were told that you were one of the first people in the country to develop a college class on social entrepreneurship. I think that you know your prior response said a lot about leadership and provided tremendous guidance to young entrepreneurs. Could you also similarly walk us through what the components of that class? are today or maybe were in the past and how it's developed? You know, as I said, back around 2006 or seven, I, I was still in Silicon Valley, and but, but, but we were getting ready to you know, kind of sell our last company. So I knew the change was coming. And that was going to be my demarcation, my jumping off point, uh, which, you know, to go find my purpose. And as I said, you know, I, I could have either started my own social business or go and teach it. And and I chose to go the teaching route because I thought, well, if, if I teach, you know, a thousand students social entrepreneurship, and if of those thousand, a hundred of them actually go into the social space, and of those hundred, you know, 50 of them actually, you know, start a social business or are a part of starting a social business, you know, we could spawn 50 to 100 companies instead of just the one that that I might do myself. So, so I wanted to teach it. And I started reading a lot of stuff from Greg Dees, you know, out of Duke and from Bill Drayton from Ashoka. You know, I really give the credit, you know, to Greg Dees and to Bill Drayton for inspiring me to to go into teaching and and to create a curriculum centered around social entrepreneurship. So I sat down with the dean of the School of Business uh, at Northern Illinois University, you know, again, it was probably 2006. And the first class that I wanted to teach was a class in microfinance because I knew that space very well. I had, you know, since being introduced to it in 99, I joined the Board of Opportunity International in Mexico. So I, I was actually on the board of an operating microfinance enterprise in Mexico. My wife, actually, my wife, Stacy, joined the National Board for Opportunity uh, here in Chicago. So I, I had a lot of experience in the microfinance space. And so, and I thought students would really benefit from a study abroad trip where they could go, actually, let's learn about microfinance 
you know, for 13 weeks of a 15 week semester. And then around the 14th or 15th, 15th week, let's take the class to Mexico and let's go visit the small business owners who were taking micro loans so they could actually see now microfinance at work or micro loans at work. And so that's what we did. We taught that first class in the fall of 07. I developed the curriculum with the help of Opportunity International. We limited the class to 10 students because it was that that's all I could take on a study abroad trip. You know, sometimes those trips are like herding cats uh, and such. So, you know, 10 students was the most that I wanted to take. Great success. The, the students loved the class. Went back to the dean and I said, okay, so that was successful. How about allowing me to teach a class, an introductory class to social entrepreneurship? And, you know, her first question was, well, what's social entrepreneurship? Because it was such a new field of study back in the in the mid-2000s. And I said, well, it's, it's taking the principles and practices of business as we know them today, but applying them to solving a social issue. So we agreed to keep talking. And, you know, she she called me back after about a month and she said, uh, you know, I just came from a dean's conference in Atlanta. They, they had a whole breakout session on that and how that was a coming field of study and interest to the generations coming through. So why don't you put together a syllabus and let's see what it looks like. So I did. And in the fall of 08, I, I, I taught my first class in social entrepreneurship. A funny story is I had 11 students who signed up for the class. The very first day of class, I asked them, I said, so who knows what social entrepreneurship is? And all 11 raised their hand. I thought, well, that's, that's pretty impressive because this, this is a new field of study. So I said, well, so give me your definition of what social entrepreneurship is. And they all said, well, it's entrepreneurship in social networking. <laughs> They all thought that, that they were there to learn how to build the next Facebook, right? And, and so when I explained to them what it was, it's taking business practices and principles and applying them to addressing a social issue. Three of them immediately dropped the class that afternoon, but eight students and I had a wonderful semester. The, the last social entrepreneurship class I taught was 2017, spring and I had 96 students in uh, that uh, class. Uh, and and it, it, it still today is, has become a, a very popular subject uh, at the university and the College of Business. And now students can actually, they can minor in social entrepreneurship and they can actually major, they can take an emphasis within the entrepreneurship major, they can take an emphasis in social entrepreneurship. And it's, it's a um, wildly successful program. That is awesome how many young adults, you and students that you have inspired to to get involved in social entrepreneurship and learn about it. What I'm interested to ask is a bit of a twist on that. When you're when you're so inspirational, you know, and you you've done so many interesting things like you have, how do you inspire people who aren't subscribing for the class, but let's say you just bump into them casually at a cocktail party and they ask you what you do and you say oh, I'm teaching social entrepreneurship and I'm involved in all these nonprofits. And, you know, how do you bring them in without making them feel badly or disenfranchising them? You know, there's sort of that holier than thou that can very quickly materialize. And and I would love some tips from you for, for me and for the audience, you know, people who are trying to, to do the right thing. How do you How do you bring people along without seeming too sanctimonious about it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. I just always tell folks, look, we weren't put on this earth to earn, you know, ju just to earn a paycheck. 
A paycheck's important. We need cash in our lives to pay for our food, our housing, our clothing, our education. But real happiness, real happiness comes from purpose. It doesn't come from a paycheck. I, I've been very blessed you know, to cash some nice paychecks in, in my life. And I put the money in the bank and it's like, okay, well, that was nice. Now what? Right. And I have relative confidence. And when I go to an ATM, I'm going to get money out. But 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 that's about it. I still squeeze every last bit of the toothpaste out out of the toothpaste tube. And I mean, I it, it didn't change me as a person, but it didn't fill me up. It didn't make me happy. And so what I have found in my life and what I tell, you know, young or old is to say that, you know, find your purpose in life and, and whatever path that's going to be for you. Find the path that's right for you because it's going to be different for everybody. Your purpose, Ed, is going to be different than my purpose. And and then you know, I'm always asked, well, how do I know when I found my purpose? And I said, well, for me, and, and what I always told my students and tell everybody today is I say, find something that breaks your heart and then do something about it. And that could be become a social entrepreneur, work for a social business, work for a socially responsible business, or, or be a volunteer or a donor, right? The fifth thing is to do nothing. And I would say, I, I'm taking the fifth option away from you. <laughs> you can't do nothing in your life, right? So you need to do one of the first four. But, you know, it, it's the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? We're, we're going to find a, so many things in our life that we can have sympathy for, but we can walk past it and move on to the rest of our life. I'll, I'll pray for you. I, I, I will have sympathy for you and so forth, but but I'm going to keep walking and I'm going to keep moving on in my life. Good luck. And then there's going to be that thing. And, 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 and like I said, it's going to be different for all of us. You're, you're going to see something that you can't walk past. You're going to see something that you say, I've got to go do something to fix that problem or at least to be a part of the solution of that problem. And that's when you have empathy, right? That's when it's, I have empathy for what you're going through and I'm going to walk next to you. I'm going to walk next to you and, and I'm going to do my very best to improve or to fix or to solve whatever is going on to the, the created the situation that you're in. You know, what, what broke my wife's heart and what she gets involved in is different than what breaks my heart and, and what I tend to get involved in. Now, we support each other. Clearly, we support each other. You know, just find that thing that breaks your heart and then go do something about it. Excellent advice and, and really well put. Before we turn to Impact Engine and learning more about what inspired you to help found that company and fund, I would love to learn a little bit more about what your morning routine looks like. You mentioned before we got on to record that you were working out. That seems to be a part of your routine, <laughs> but you know, somebody as successful as you, we want to know the secrets of what gets you up in the morning ready to leave. Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? <laughs> Coffee, clearly. Well, uh, yeah, my, my routine is, is not for everyone, but my wife and I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and we have a, a wonderful yellow lab by the name of Bradley. Brad and I are, are out by 5 o'clock in the morning. We do between 4 and 5 miles, and then I, uh, I, I get back home, and, and I typically will go up into the gym and, and 
do a Peloton uh, spin or, or do do weights. And, and then I, you know, I, I typically start my day by around nine, you know, in terms of business or whatever it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed right now in my life. I'm, I'm 66 years old. So, you know, running a company from an operational standpoint is not something that I endeavor to do, nor do I think it's, it's, what God wants me doing right now. I view my role in life is to enable people to to follow their dreams and to help make the world a better place. So I, I work with as many social entrepreneurs as I can, helping to advise them or consult them. Um, I don't sit on as many boards anymore as I used to, simply because, you know, from a travel standpoint, I don't like doing board calls via telephone. I, I, I think you miss a lot. I, I like to be there in person. So the only boards I really, you know, board positions I take right now are ones that are local to me where I can, you know, drive to the board meetings and such. But, you know, I, I spend most of my day working with people trying to make the world a better place. As you mentioned at the beginning in your introduction, I'm the chairman of the Board of Trustees at Northern Illinois University. You know, we're a university of 18,000 students. Up until about 45 days ago, the world was uh, was was pretty calm and, and we were working on a bunch of fun things. And in the last 45 days, we've had our priorities shifted from a university standpoint, but we have a tremendous leadership team there. Dr. Lisa Freeman is uh, the president of our university and, uh, and she and I work very closely together, guiding us through this COVID issue that we are, are all faced with or crisis that we're all faced with. So yeah, that, that's kind of how I spend my day. Let's, let's turn to Impact Engine. You were one of the founding investors and board members. Impact Engine, as many of our listeners know, is a women-led impact investment firm based out of Chicago. We interviewed Jessica Drusta-Yagan on the podcast before, and she's a friend of, of mine as well. What was it like to be the part of a founding team at an impact investment firm, which was frankly one of the first in the Chicago area? Yeah, no, it, it, it was exciting. So Impact Engine, I got involved there through Linda Dara. So Linda, uh, at that time, was actually one of the leaders in the entrepreneurship program at the at the University of Chicago. She now moved over to Northwestern, but her and, you know, another uh, professor at Northwestern, Jamie Jones, you know, had come up with the original idea for Impact Engine. And I had breakfast with Linda one day and and then I met Jamie and and their vision was the same as my vision. I actually was working a similar vision with another person in Chicago. She went on to do something different and I thought, well, this is great. I can help to move the vision of having a forum or having an impact fund, you know, by which to fund social businesses, for-profit social businesses, you know, working with Linda and Jamie. They asked you know, if I would want to be a part of that. And, and of course, I said yes. So I was one of the founding board members, along with Tasha Seitz, who is, you know, you know, currently the chief investment officer for Impact Engine. And I remember our, our, our first few board meetings, you know, the concept of Impact Engine back then was not so much, let's go out and raise $25 million to have an impact fund. It was more, 
let's provide a um, incubator slash accelerator program. So a 16 week or, you know, a multiple week program for social businesses to come in and launch their business. We provided them with a little, with a little bit of capital, about $25,000 in capital. We provided them with office space. We provided them with mentors and, and different leaders to, to, to help them to launch their business. You know, we clearly needed somebody who could come in and run the accelerator on a, on a day-in, day-out basis. And none of us were in a position to do that. I had a full-time job teaching back then. Tasha was a venture capitalist in Chicago. Linda and Jamie, they were teaching as well. And we were blessed to find Chuck Templeton. So Chuck had Chuck is one of the co-founders of Open Table. Chuck had just left Open Table and very committed to the social space. So Chuck came in as our executive director. And you know, from there we were kind of off to the races. We raised about a half a million dollars to fund the first companies that came into uh, you know, that came into Impact Engine. And, and we ran one program a year. So we had eight to ten companies that would come in and they would go through a, a process that was vetted by the board and Chuck uh, what and, and and Chuck joined the board of course and they would go through a six a 16 week process and then at the end of that 16 weeks it was like shark tank we would gather uh, X number of investors into a room and they would have eight eight to 10 minutes to present it to those investors with the hope of eventually being able to find funding for their business. It was inspiring to see what people were doing and, and the types of problems that they were solving and the businesses that they were creating to solve those issues. And, and I used a lot of them. I, I would bring them into my classes. So it was great to be able to have access to these great social entrepreneurs and bring them into my class to say, okay, here is, you know, and most times the average age Age of a social entrepreneur that we worked with at Impact Engine was not too far off of the college students that I was teaching. Most of our entrepreneurs were in their mid-20s to early 30s, so they really related to my classes. As we wrap up, I would love to ask you the very big question, which is, what is your vision for the future of business? Just a little question. Yeah, just a little <laughs> question. I don't think that, that any business right now can, can survive without having some social purpose to what they're doing. And and I always, so my wife's a vegan, I'm a vegetarian, and I love McDonald's. <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you why I love McDonald's, right? Uh, because, you know, the big companies really have the ability to move the needle on social issues. For example, you know, McDonald's, when they say we're going to only buy fair trade coffee, they really move the needle on fair trade coffee. And so the large companies like McDonald's, Target, Enterprise Cars and so forth, and I only know them because they do a lot of work out at NIU, Discover Card, they are finding their social purpose. Starbucks, you know, they're, they're finding their social purpose so they can use their global clout from a buying standpoint and from a market presence standpoint to really advance social issues and to really help alleviate social issues. So don't ignore the big businesses and say, well, well, they're, they're just out there, you know, 
to make money. No, no, that's not the case at all. I think that big business, if done right, big business has an absolute ability to move the needle on social issues. I think where the small businesses come in and the entrepreneurs come in for social change is to get on the ground in the areas where this change needs to happen. So to get onto the ground in the United States or in India or in Africa or South America and actually start working with the people that we're trying to lift from whatever social issue we're trying to lift them from. They are kind of, you know, become the foot soldiers, if you will, of social change. You know, we need, you know, the big companies coming from from the top down with marketing cloud and the financial cloud that they have to really move the needle on things, you know, as I mentioned, like with fair trade coffee and other things. And then, you know, we need the entrepreneurs coming from the ground up on the ground, working with the people who are affected by this social change. And together from the top down and the bottom up, you know, we can really affect social change and make this world a better place. So I believe that there's a need for both. I'll buy that for a buck. Yeah, I love that perspective. Dennis, I just want to say thank you. It's been great to speak with you today on the podcast. I I know that our listeners learned a lot. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Well, hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. uh, uh, Thank you, Ed and Eva, for having me. To all of those, to the two of you and all those out there, be safe. Uh, We are clearly in very uncharted waters here right now with the COVID virus. Wash your hands a lot. Follow the local local guidelines uh, that your local officials have put out, and we will defeat this virus and we will kind of come through the other side. It's going to take the efforts of all of us. This is really a very interesting time, you know, because, you know, at least in my lifetime, it's, it's the, it's the first I've ever seen where you've had a tragedy and a crisis affect everybody in the world. And, you know, in a lot of respects, it's been very heartwarming to see how people have pulled together to to help defeat this virus. And, and I also think, and, and, and my wish is, is that it's also brought us back to some values. You know, we didn't talk about value-centered leadership, but I'm, I'm very into values uh, and value-centered leadership. And it's brought back, I think, some family values and some communal values of talking to each other again at dinner and being together and and when when the world does get back to pre-covid which which we will i hope we don't lose some of 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 these interpersonal values that i think we've gained during this crisis of kind of bringing families and and bringing communals back together again to actually you know talk to each other and 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 to be together so my prayers and well wishes to everybody out there and 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 please be safe absolutely and when it's all over i'd love to find a way to meet you in person it'd be great to not practice social distancing for once. Amen. So yeah, no, Give you I a would big look hug. forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Sending a virtual hug for now. And one of our recent podcast guests actually put it put it similarly. He said, leaders are remembering to be human when they go to work. And I think that yeah. the interplay, as you pointed out, Dennis, of values at home and values-centered leadership are also influencing one another. So thank you for bringing that yeah. up and hope to meet you in the near future and all the very best. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. 
you've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate review. And if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.